Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Clones, what's going on? An absolutely crazy day here in the jungle. And no, it's not just because it's Podcast Tuesday, but because after over a decade in this studio, we are picking up and we are moving, turning the lights off and never looking back. But before we hit the down button from the 16th floor for the very last time, we had some fun looking back at the best moments that we have ever had here. We also had three nice guests. Carlos Dansby came in, talked about joining the 4020 Club, wanting to earn a gold jacket before he's done. Portland head coach Terry Stotts and I got caught up after the Trailblazers' quick start. Yogi Roth broke down Chip Kelly's hiring at UCLA and who he's voting for in the Heisman race. Alvi, the movers are waiting on us, so go ahead and roll it. I want to start with some basketball this morning because the first few months of the post-Chris Paul era for the Clippers have not exactly been awesome, have they? Pat Beverly, already lost for the season. Milos Teodosic, the guy that everybody was clamoring to see, that everybody couldn't wait to see, left the home open over the foot injury. He has not returned. Danilo Gallinari has missed the last 10 games. It has not been awesome. Now, there is some good news. They did beat the Lakers last night to win their third straight game. They're now within three games of 500. And that's your good news. Because the nightmare now begins. They may have lost Blake Griffin again. And it didn't look good last night. With less than five minutes left in the fourth, Griffin, Lonzo Ball, and Austin Rivers were battling for a loose ball on the floor, and the result was ugly. Lonzo loses it. Ball on the floor, picked up by Nancy. Scores and a foul. Lakers got lucky, and Griffin is down and hurt. The foul's on Austin Rivers. Blake is lying flat on his back, and now he's going to stand up. The ball was on the floor. Blake had it, and he bumped heads with Lonzo. Austin Rivers rolled over on his knees. Very fortunate to be walking around, Blake Griffin. Austin fell awkwardly across his leg. A huge development. Blake Griffin asked to come out of the game and went straight to the Clippers' locker room. He is not on the floor for the final 350. Lakers radio. That's not good. In fact, that was awkward. So now he's going to be evaluated today, and if Griffin misses time... That is brutal news for a team that's already going through a brutal season. Brutal, but not exactly shocking, is it? I mean, this isn't wrecking his hand, punching an assistant equipment manager in the face. This is just flat-out bad luck. Punching a staff member who is supposed to be one of your good friends is asinine. This is just unlucky. This is not his fault. The other thing was, this isn't. And it's something that he's dealt with for a number of years now. Think about Blake Griffin. Broken left kneecap before his first season. Torn left meniscus three years later. Surgery on his right knee last year. Big toe injury in last year's playoffs. He has not played more than 67 games over the past three seasons. And now, in a season where they have never needed this guy more than they do right now, there's a chance he might be out for quite some time. Again, we still don't know how serious the injury is. There's a chance that maybe it's not that bad. But I also know how Clipper fans think, and I know the phrase, Clippers curse, is in the back of all your heads. I can't tell you that it shouldn't be. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I don't believe in curses or jinxes or anything like that. But I can't tell you that it's all in your head either. You had Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, and J.J. Redick, and you still couldn't cash it in. Not only that, not only could they not cash it in, 
but the ways that they weren't cashed in were brutal. Blowing a 3-1 series lead in 2015, losing Paul and Griffin in the same playoff game in 2016, and losing to the Jazz in Game 7 at home in 2017. And now what? In the offseason, Paul leaves, he's on fire with the Rockets right now. Redick leaves, he's part of the Sixers' revitalization project. Griffin stays, gets exactly what he wanted, gets rid of CP3, and he gets hurt. And nearly everyone who joined the team in the offseason has gotten hurt too. Remember when some people literally try to suggest that maybe the Clippers would be even better without Paul. Better off without Chris Paul. Yeah, I don't remember that either. That was a ridiculous take at the time, and it looks even worse right now. Again, I don't believe in curses. I'm not going to talk about curses or blame this on some mysterious force. But I'm not sure that I can stop you if that's what you want to do. I just know that Steve Ballmer does not strike me as a guy who believes in curses. Does this sound like somebody who's going to be moping around about his bad luck? That bro is not going to sit around and mope and complain. And neither will this Clipper bro. Turn up. Love you guys. Awesome. So there you go, Clipper Nation. Keep your fingers crossed for the Blake Griffin evaluation today. Hopefully they get good news. But even if it is bad news, just turn up. Love you guys. Awesome. Turn up. Love you guys. Awesome. But one more thing. If you couldn't win with an all-time great point guard like Chris Paul, how the hell are you going to win without him? And especially without Blake Griffin if you lose him again? And the answer obviously is you're not. The window not only slams shut, it's painted over and may not open ever again. A bad break last night. And they already had all sorts of problems before that. Hopefully they get good news. Carlos Dansby is my guest. Carlos, great to have you back. How are you? Rome, I'm doing great, man. How about yourself? Man, I'm great. Carlos, great to have you. All right, so let me first ask you about that tight win over Jacksonville on Sunday. The defense comes up big on the Jags' last two possessions. I've got to ask, what was going through your head as Phil Dawson came out for a 57-yard field goal attempt, and then what did you think when it went through to win it? Oh, man, it was it was perfect. It was perfect, man. It was perfect. It was a great team win. Um, to end it like that, you couldn't write it better. You know, uh, defense make a big play. Offense score, really, on a big play. You know, and um, defense make a big play to stop them. We get back in position, and the special teams finish it, man. That's that's team ball. That's team ball, man. And um, we couldn't rent it. We could have written that any better than it didn't um, play it out Sunday night. Carlos Dansby joining us. You know, I'm always curious to see what you guys do to celebrate a big win like that, especially since wins in the NFL are so hard to come by. So when you get one, you better enjoy it. Did I see you celebrating with a steak and some lobster mash? And if so, how was it? <laughs> yeah, man. Um, no, we just bonded, man. The, the defense, man, defensive guys, man, we, we we locking up right now, man. We uh, we just on a different level right now um, mentally, you know, and um, – as a unit, we're just trying to play as one and do much as we can on the field and off the field. And like I said, we, we definitely had a steak at um, City Hall Restaurant. You know what I'm saying? Steak Restaurant, man, it's perfect location, perfect vibe. You know, um, a nice steak, lobster mash, man. That's 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 how you close it out. Dude, that's got to be such a great night. I mean, honestly, when everybody's <laughs> pulling in the same direction, when you're grinding out, when you're working that hard and you find a way to get it done, that's got to be the best night ever. I mean, not to belabor that fact, but when you can get with your crew and the guys that you're going to battle with and have a nice steak after a win like that, that's got to feel so good. 
Oh, uh, man, it's great. It's, it's perfect, man. Like you said, uh, we went to battle. Um, it was a tough fought game against a great team. You know what I'm saying? Them, them guys playing well um, in, in all three phases as well. And like I said, for us to go out and win the game like we did, man, we had to celebrate it and um, with, with, with a victory done. Carlos Dansby is my guest. All right, so go back to earlier this month. The win over San Francisco and the performance that earned you Player of the Week for the NFC, there are a lot of things that we could talk about in that game, including the seven mm-hmm. tackles and the sack, but I've got to ask you about the biggest play, your red zone pick that made history because it put you in that 40-sack, 20-interception club. First, take me through the play, and how did it feel to come down with that interception? Um, first, through the play, um, like I said, it was – it was it was perfect timing. Um, I knew they was gonna run like a, I want to say like a little dig route behind me and one in front of me. So I kind of just tried to play in between both of them, and we got a lot of pressure on the quarterback. And all of a sudden, I just seen him duck and throw. And when I seen him duck and throw the ball, hit the hit his lineman in the head. I like, oh man, I, I didn't know twenty was gonna be this easy for me. So I, I started smiling, man, grabbed it. And the first thing I was thinking, just get down, seal the seal the win. Let's get up out of here and um. And go celebrate, man. It's, it's, it's over, you know? See, I think it's 20. It may have seemed easy at the time, but you've been chasing that interception for quite some time. Not to the point that you were ever going to be selfish and hurt the team in the process, but it had been a goal for a pretty long time. How does it feel mm-hmm. then to be a member of the 40-20 club with guys like Seth Joyner, Ray Lewis, Wilbur Marshall, and Brian Urlacher? Um, it's, it's huge, man. It's huge. Um, I can't really put it – I can't really describe it. And put it in words because it's 51 years of football, 52 years of football, and only four guys been able to do something like that. And for me to be the fifth guy in this era of football um, to do this, um, it's it's huge, man. It's 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 motivating to a lot of people. You know, saying a lot of linebackers that's playing this game and, and future linebackers to play this game. And I'm I'm just glad I, I had opportunity to allow them to bear witness to this and uh, put it in front of them and let them go chase it. You know, what I'm saying because that's how. Erlacher and Ray Lewis, Steph Joyner, these guys did it for me. They put it in front of me. So I had to go chase it, you know, because um, I wanted to be one of the best to ever do it. And that was, that was my goal when I first came into the league. And like I said, I'm getting closer and closer to it. Clones, how about a minute so I can talk to you about Stamps.com? Listen, these days, you can get practically everything on demand, such as our podcast. Listen whenever you want, when it's convenient for you. So let me ask you. Why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Anything that you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk. As an example, the holidays are coming up. My wife, Janet, is all about the Christmas card. We send out hundreds, literally hundreds of Christmas cards, and there's no way we could do it without Stamps.com. I'm going to print my own postage. I'm going to do it when I want and do it at home. Trust me, with the holidays coming up, you should do the exact same thing, and you'll thank me for it. Go to Stamps.com, hit the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Jungle. That's Stamps.com, enter Jungle for a special, special offer. A four-week trial, which includes postage and a digital scale. Do not wait. You want to go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, hit the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Jungle. That's Stamps.com, enter Jungle. Stamps.com, never go to the post office ever again. I know I won't. That's Stamps.com. You're in that club, and nobody can take that from you. Now, after the game, Bruce Arians presented you with the game ball, and your teammates were clearly fired up. What did it mean to share that moment with them? It was huge. It was huge because without them, I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. Um, I wouldn't be able to do it in an Arizona uniform. Um, 
And because, like I said, I could have did it in Cincinnati. I had plenty of opportunities to get get interceptions in Cincinnati. I let the other guys get them because, like I said, it's it's about team, and this is an ultimate team game. So without those guys being in place and doing what they need to do, um, I wouldn't be able to have these these individual accolades like I have right now with with, with the forty sacks and twenty interceptions. Um, everybody plays a part in it, on the field and off the field. You know what I'm saying? Taking care of my body the whole nine, so everybody get a, gets an opportunity to um, experience. You know what I'm saying? The 20 Club, man, it's, it's a beautiful thing to have family and friends and, and loved ones, guys who care for me, just, you know, be a part of this. Carlos Dansby joining us. You know, to that point, Steve Kimes said something kind of funny afterwards. The GM, he said after watching your postgame speech, quote, you may be one of the worst speech givers I've ever heard. <laughs> so you guys go way, way back. But, I mean, it's part of this. I've never known you, Carlos, to be somebody at a loss for words. Were you overcome by emotion in the moment thinking about all the people who have been a part of your journey. Was that part of it? That that was that was totally it. You know, I, I had to thank the guys that was there. You know, um, I had to thank God personally for, you know, giving me a gift, you know, and um and letting me, you know, get closer to one of the desires in my heart. You know, like I said, that's that's something I wanted to do when I first came in the league. I mean, the first interview at the Combine, I told Coach Dennis Green I wanted the yellow jacket. I wasn't worried about no Super Bowls. I wasn't worried about no Pro Bowls, nothing, nothing else but the yellow jacket, um, the gold jacket, my bad. And um, I don't want to be disrespectful to the game, gold jacket. Um, and he asked me, do I know what that entails? And I said, yeah. I said, entails of me dedicating myself, um, being disciplined and, 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 you know, making a lot of sacrifices. And um, he was like, well, you don't want nothing else. I said, if I'm playing at that level, everything else will come. So, um, but I've been able to do it with no Pro Bowls. So it's kind of special to me, you know. Um, and like I said, I'm still hunting, man. I'm still hunting. I got more. To, I got more to do. I got more left in me, and I, I want to catch everybody that's in this class. I want to surpass everybody. Carlos Dansby joining us. All right, so you're still hunting, and you've still got some good football in you. You've played 14 years now. I mean, the league is so different now, and the game is so different now than when you got in. Most NFL careers are pretty short. So how are you been able to? How are you able to still play at such a high level this far into your career? What's been the secret? Um, my, my cup is never full. Yeah, my cup is never full. I'm always learning, um, finding new ways to do things. And like I said, my, my determination to, to be the best um, is going to allow me to evolve with the game. And that's what I've been able to do. That's what separates me from everybody else. I've been able to evolve. I see what, what the game is turning into, and I just evolve with it. And um, once, you, once you can't adapt anymore, and it, once you can't adapt, man, you're going to die, period. To any and every situation that you're involved in in life, you got to be able to adapt to the situation. If you can't adapt to the situation, the situation is dead. Period. So um, I'm going to adapt. I'm going to survive, and I'm going, you know, prove a lot of people wrong. Right on top of that, you're the pride of Auburn University. I've got to ask, how did it feel yes, to sir. watch your guys beat Alabama on Saturday? How'd that feel? Oh man, I was celebrating all night. Celebrating all night. Because I spoke, I told, I told people, man, I'm like, man, y'all just don't understand. We're going to beat Alabama. Everybody want to say, man, ain't no way. You know, what? Well, bet. Put your money on it. They were scared, man. Them boys were scared. You seen it. I seen it. I knew it after we beat Georgia, the way we beat Georgia the first time, everybody had, they, everybody was nervous. All the Alabama fans was nervous. And they got exactly what, what was coming to them. You know, uh, they knew they were going to get beat. Yeah, think about that matchup too, Carlos. There was nothing gimmicky about that. There was no trickery. Right. There was no nothing fluky about that. I mean, they straight up lined up and punched him in the head and won that game. 
Now, for those who have never experienced that rivalry as a player, how would you describe it? Is there anything that you can compare to the intensity of Auburn v. Alabama? Man, <laughs> funny you say that, Rome. I, I, I spoke to the linebackers the night before, and my exact words to them was, it's nothing else like it. I didn't play in the Super Bowl. I'm an NFC champion. Um, I made plays in the Super Bowl. But I told them, I said, man, it's nothing like this game. Period. Period. I said, man, every play that y'all, every snap that y'all play, y'all gonna be legends. Every snap. So whatever play that's, that's being made, it's gonna be in the history books forever. I mean, forever. Your grandkids gonna be able to see that. Like, so that's the kind of message I had to get to those guys the night before. And I just told them, man, just lock in. I said, y'all, y'all got the talent. Y'all got all. Y'all got all the tools. I said, but go be legends. I said, man, that's that's what this game is all about. And um, man, they was they was locked in. They were ready to roll, and they went and played well. already into the pile he goes, trying to dig his way. Wolf among them, a couple down there, and Pecco with his hands right around his ankles. Oh, we have a fight on the other side. Look at this. After Crabtree, helmets being thrown. Talib grabbed it off. Referee is down, and look at holding on to his ribs. That started with the block. That was Crabtree on a key to lead. Look, we, got, we have another one right Look here. Look at this. Oh, and a swing right well, there. This is crazy because now you're going to get ejected from the game. I mean, this is just selfish. Wow. Pretty amazing, right? So when you see a melee like that, what punishment fits that crime? What would the punishment for something like that be? Jack Del Rio was not expecting anything significant at all. That's for the league to decide. I, I would hope not. Based on what I saw, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think there would be that type of reaction. That was his response to the question of whether or not he was expecting a suspension. For the league to decide, I would hope not. Based on what I saw, I would not think that there would be that type of reaction, except there was that type of reaction. And so he was no doubt surprised. The league announced that both guys would be suspended for not one, but two games. Look out. And then when that news broke, Del Rio retweeted it with the thinking emoji and Quote, hard to understand the reasoning for this judgment based on the most recent ruling with altercation. See wide receiver Cincinnati and DB Jacks equals zero game suspended. All right, first off, how great is it that Jack Del Rio was on Twitter and dropping emojis? That might be the best part or the best thing in the league right now. More coaches should be doing that. I want Bill Belichick tweeting the crying laughing face or the heart-eyes emoji after a big win. Secondly, Jack Del Rio does make a very good argument, I think. He makes a compelling argument that A.J. Green did not get suspended at all for his takedown and then attempted pummeling of Jalen Ramsey. But Crabtree and Tlaib each got two games, especially since, according to ESPN.com's Kevin Seifert, if it's not reduced on appeal... It would rank among the most severe punishments for on-field behavior in NFL history. But it does seem pretty clear that the league is looking to send a message. Message being that this sort of thing can't happen. We can't have guys fighting every time they face each other. It was payback. It was a repeat fight. One that everybody knew was going to happen. How do we know that? Well, for starters, Crabtree's teammate, Corderell Patterson, said as much. Patterson said, quote, We all knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of time when. Everybody was ready, prepared for it, end quote. 
And speaking of being ready and prepared for that fight, there is also this detail from Adam Schefter. Quote, Raiders wide receiver Michael Crabtree taped his chain to himself before Sunday's game, knowing he was facing the chain-snatching Broncos CB, Akib Tlaib. And Tlaib still got it. End quote. That's an all-timer. I love that Crabtree had the foresight to tape his chain to himself before facing Tlaib. And I love that it didn't matter. Not only did it not matter, knowing that Crabtree taped it down probably makes it even sweeter for Tlaib because he snatched it again. This dude's like Thomas Crown. Busting into a museum and stealing a painting from right under the security guard's noses. Now Crabtree's going to have to find a way to get a lock and a chain to hold down the first chain, but you know Tlaib is going to probably find a way to beat that too. And then when it came to the punishment itself, NFL VP of Football Ops, John Runyon's letter to Crabtree reminded him that he punched Chris Harris on the previous play and then triggered the melee that resulted in an injury to one of the refs. Runyon told Tlaib that he deliberately ripped Crabtree's chain again, endangered others by throwing a helmet, and he also threw a punch. In other words, they did a bunch of crazy-ish. And they're repeat offenders. Now back to what Jack Del Rio said about A.J. Green. Seems to me Green probably skated because he's A.J. Green. And it was so out of character for him that the league figured the ejection was enough of a punishment. I'm guessing the league also figured that Tlaib and Crabtree are, well, Tlaib and Crabtree. They're not only repeat offenders, but repeat offenders with each other. So the league had to send a message because as much as fans might have liked that fight and seen guys chase each other around the field and snatch chains from one another, the league office was not going to celebrate that and they had to do something. So the question then is finally, will those two games hold up on appeal or are they going to drop it down to one? And will this serve as any sort of a deterrent the next time Tlaib and Crabtree meet on the field? Maybe. Probably, but who knows? I just know the Crabtree better figure out some sort of special security system for that chain. Because you know that Tlaib is going to be looking for a hat trick. Because I don't know what's funnier. The Crab won't take the chain off, or the Tlaib keeps ripping it off. But you know this is not the end of this. You know these two will go again. It's not a question of if, but a matter of when either on the field or off the field. If they see each other again, you know something's going to happen. So where do you come out? Is the punishment going to stick? Did they deserve two games? And how do they get two if A.J. Green doesn't get one? But again, not only repeat offenders, but repeat offenders with each other. 1-800-636-8686. I took great pains to lay that all out. What do you think? Where do you come out? Let's go to Ken in Sacramento. Ken, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Romy. Thanks for the vine. You know, the whole thing, actually, when you think about it, is very silly. And quite frankly, you have two grown professional men who are acting in the parlance of the street. Because Tlaib knows 
that when you snatch somebody's chain in the street, what the message says, it says, I punk you, I control you. Usually the chain snatching happens after the first guy has beat the other guy's butt and to show total dominance, I'm going to snatch your chain and let you know that I totally dominate you. This was a social media fight because for the last year, you know Crabtree has been sitting around listening to probably his boys letting them know, hey, man, you can't let him get away with that. He snatched your chain. And quite frankly, everybody on social media and everybody that makes a comment about it talks about it as if to leave punk Crabtree. Even yourself, Roman, just a minute. He got him again. He taped it to his chest. He still got him, and he'll probably rip it a third time. In the parlance, like I said, of the street, that's disrespectful. That's telling somebody, I own you. And as a result, Crabtree can't look past it. He can't be professional enough to say, you know what, I'm going to let this go. This is a small thing. I can't afford to get kicked out of games. I can't afford to lose salary. I can't afford any of this. He can't look look past it only because of what it means in terms of the social media and the street cred. And so, unfortunately, these guys are so caught up in that identity that they're willing to risk their brand as it, as it stands to engage in this kind of stuff. It sends the wrong message, especially at this time when the NFL is getting all the heat with the protests with Trump and everything else. So the league had to send a message. You cannot allow this thing to happen. But quite frankly, had they come down on Tlaib the first time this happened, this wouldn't be repeated like this because Crabtree wouldn't have felt he needed to come correct and get it done on the field to save face to himself and to his boys. I will go down believing that this escalated to the to the level that it was strictly because he was seen as being punked and he couldn't allow that to happen. Mom man, rack him. So well done, Ken. Terry Stotts is my guest. Terry, it's so good to have you back. How are things, Terry? Uh, things are going well, Jim. How about you? I'm doing great. It's always good to visit with you. Thanks so much for doing this. Why don't we start last night with that win over New York. Damian Lillard had 32 points, five assists. Terry, it seems like every great player loves the challenge of playing at the Garden. So what did you make of his performance last night? Uh, I thought he was uh, really good. He had 11 in the first quarter, and I think he had he may have had 13 in the, in the third quarter. So he got us off to a really good start in both halves. Um, we kind of had a little in the fourth quarter when he was out, and then he came back and uh, just did a nice job of leading us uh, in the end when things got a little frazzled. But uh, he's having a terrific season, and I, I think everybody knows how I feel about him. He's um, He's been a great leader on the team, and, and he's all about doing what's best for the team. You know, I think that everybody knows how you feel about him, and now we know how he feels about you. He was talking about how when – Players come there. They always talk about what a great situation it is and how the culture is so good. But you had a road trip, and it featured a 17-point comeback at Washington on Saturday, which was your birthday. After the game, the players signed the ball. They gave it to you. And then Lillard said, quote, I think our coach is. We play for a great coach, but we know that we play for an even better person. I wouldn't rather play for any other coach. I hope he's happy with the effort tonight. We got a crazy win for him. End of quote. I mean, that's really something. Number one, how was the win? And then what did it mean to hear something like that from a player like that? Well, the win was uh, exceptional. To have that win, that kind of win, uh, on my 60th birthday was <laughs> was pretty special. But, you know, Damian, Damian and I came in together, and uh, we've been through a lot, of, a lot of ups and downs together, and we both, I, I think, really appreciate what we, what we have. And, uh, you know, for him to say that, publicly uh 
it, it means a lot. You know, in the pro game, you don't get that as much as maybe you do in high school or college where there's a different uh, dynamic to the relationship. And for an NBA player to say that about his coach is, uh, is pretty meaningful. I think you said that even much better than I did, Terry. I think that's very true. You don't hear that very often from an NBA player, and you don't hear that very often from an NBA superstar. He's also said that when guys do come from other organizations, they always tell him, quote, you're lucky that this is where you've always been. It's a good organization, and it's not like this everywhere, end quote. So how would you describe the attitude and the approach of the organization and the coaching staff? What makes it different from other spots around the league? Well, I'm really, you know, I'm biased. I'm really proud of what we've developed here in Portland. I think it starts with, with Neil O'Shea and the type of players uh, that he brought in, and he's made it a player's first organization. Uh, we bring in good people. Uh, when people come from different programs, we there's an understanding of how we do things. Uh, we're respectful of each other. We're respectful of, of being on time. Um, I've had to do very little finding in, in my time here because um, – you know, we do things the right way, and uh, I think it, it just makes it easier if there's an understanding that uh, what professionalism is, and I try to be fair. Uh, I try not to, uh, you know, be obnoxious with uh, a lot of rules, but, you know, there's a certain professionalism that, that is adhered to, and it, I think it just trickles down. But like I said, it, uh, I think it starts at the top, and and then once you've established it, it's it's like a college program in that once you've established it, like in San Antonio, it's easier to maintain. The hard part is was those first two or three years where you're establishing who you are as a program. It seems to me, and the key word there is development, the way you go about developing guys. I mean, it's a two-way street, right? You might have a plan, but they've got to want to work that plan for you. So how do you go about evaluating players and deciding whether or not they're a good fit for how you approach that developmental work? Well, again, I go, I go back to Neil O'Shea. I think he's done an outstanding job uh, in the draft over the years. Uh, you look at uh, whether it's uh, Damian or C.J. McCollum or Will Barton, uh, Myers Leonard. We got uh, who is now starting. Uh, it's just he he drafts talent. He drafts good people who want to work, um, and we're able to just develop it. Now, as far as the development of the players, I have an outstanding coaching staff who love to be in the gym, who love spending time with the players in the gym, taking them out to dinner, uh, developing the relationships that, you know, they're able to, they want to get better and they want to work with the coaches. And it's not a drudgery for, for my assistant coaches to be in the gym and spend time with the players. And the players feel that they, they know sincerity and they, they know when it's not sincere. And, I think that goes a long way. Terry Stotts joining us for a few more moments. You know, you beat Memphis earlier in the road trip, and then yesterday there was the announcement that the Grizzlies had fired David Fisdale. I mean, the NBA coaching fraternity is a very small one. So what's your reaction when you see a coach getting fired before the end of November? Uh, you know, no matter when a coach gets fired, uh, there's there's empathy. Um no one really knows what's going on within the organization, but one thing we've all been through it is how you navigate losing and, and dealing with expectations is, is very difficult. And I think there has to be patience. I think there has to be understanding. Um, you hate to be reactionary and, you know, I say reactionary. I mean, as a coach, you can't be reactionary uh, to a losing streak, general manager or ownership. I think there has to be an understanding of, 
where the team is and where it's going and what what needs to be done. And I very seldom comment on other organizations and the decisions that they make uh, in a variety of areas. But as a coach, and you see uh, a coach with the success that David had last year and the injuries they were dealing with this year, it's just it's very disappointing, very frustrating from a, a coaching standpoint because it's uh, it's a tough job, and I think everybody has to understand uh, the ebb and flow of an NBA season. Hey, listen, I respect where you're coming from because you're right. I mean, it's not your place to talk about somebody else's situation, and far be it for me to say it because I'm not there. I just find it hard to believe that a guy like that with that kind of pedigree and the success he's had there is relieved of his duties when there's so many other injuries and so many other things going on. But we can pick that up a little bit later. Before you go, Terry, Yusuf Nurkic, 12-9-6 and six last night. Ever since he came over in the trade last season, he seems to have fit in extremely well. But now that you've had more time with him, what do you make of his game and the way he impacts everybody else on the court? Well, he's had a, a huge impact on our on our team. Uh, more, most significantly was at the end of last year. You know, he, he hasn't picked up the same stride that uh, that he was with with us at the end of the season last year. But you know, the thing I have to keep remembering for me and coaching him is that he's still only 23 years old, and um, and he didn't. You know, even though he's been in the league for a few years. Uh, it's still relatively new having this responsibility and and being consistent and playing at this level. And there's so much room for him to grow. And what makes it easier for me and my staff is that he wants he wants to get better. He wants to be a great teammate. He's very appreciative of playing with Damian Lillard because of his leadership. But you know, for a young player, uh, no matter where you are in this league, is about doing it the same thing every night and. You know, he had a great night uh, the other night. I believe it was against Brooklyn. But uh, his challenge, like any other young players, is to do it every night. Romers, best memory, one word, two syllables, hack off. More specifically, Matt in Cleveland. What's going on? What's up? Uh, first of all, being a star linebacker in Canada, that just means you're a failed hockey player. Uh uh, Christy Alley, uh, Val Kilmer, Global Warming. Uh, That's not a good call. No. Uh, you don't like the Christy Alley, Val Kilmer, Global Warming. Matt in Cleveland, 2011. This is why the hack off existed. It was so bad, it was incredible. And then it was just so bad, it was terrible. He also references the G-O-A-T goat, Jolene. Jolene in Farmington. What's up, girlfriend? How you doing, Rome? Good, Jolene. How are you? I'm pretty good. I know everybody's been anticipating my call. Hell yes, they are. What do you got for them? Uh, all kinds of BS. Hey, Jolene, anytime you want to start, it's fine. Let it rip. What I got to say for Fabian is he's a German Shepherd rescue mix, and there's nothing more than sad, more sadder than one man hockey sacking by himself. Oh yeah, I guess there is. Ish. Hey, what up, Ish? I'm going down. I'm gonna take all y'all down like Meta World Peace, baby. You can't come back from me. Hey, hey, war child, please kiss a baby. Meta World Peace, baby. 
This call is the biggest thing since the Prince William and Kate Middleton's wedding, and the world's going to stop rotating when I sit in the room with Jim Rome and co-host the show. Hey, just for a future reference, I like my coffee black. Uh, that's for you, Ish. Jolene, are you still there? I'm out, Bo. I'm out, Bo. That was 2012. That was the pinnacle, the absolute pinnacle of the hack off. It was all downhill from there. It never came anywhere near that ever again. So like I said, there was a time when it was so horrible, it was incredible. In fact, the hack off was better than the smack off. The hack off literally was better than the smack off. It was so bad, it was legendary. And it never, ever was any better than it was with that phone call from Jolene. Hey, hey, hey. And then it went downhill. Frank and Raleigh writes, play it now, thank me later. Incredible decade, Rome. Can't wait to hear and watch the next decade. Frank and Raleigh. This email says, hi, Jimmy. With all this talk of memories and fooling your listeners, it reminded me of my favorite jungle moment in your current studio. It was when you couldn't get anything by that one clone, Larry, in Indiana. You played some doctored clips of Nick Saban saying that he wasn't going to be the head coach at a few different places, and that's when Larry hit you with the classic, can't fool me, Rome. Today has been awesome, Jim, as have been the last 10 years. Thanks. Dana in Cedar Rapids, a.k.a. Jan Smack, War Lady Clones. Nice job, Dana. She's talking about this. Let's go to Larry in Indiana. Larry, it's good to have you on the show. How are you? Uh, I got a little problem with what you're trying to pull on uh, America. What's that? Well, me and my cousin, we both look, work at Radio Shack, and we can tell that audio is doctored. We slowed it down. As soon as it gets to LSU part, you can tell it's split. And your producer trying to tell me that it's because it's on the radio that I can't understand it. And I don't know where you get your producers from, but at Radio Shack, we know the damn difference, Jim. You're telling me you can tell the difference, and I'm trying to pull something over on America? Am I hearing this right? Yeah, you're damn right, Jim. And if you're doing it for stick, that's one thing. Ha-ha, it's funny. But if you guys are trying to tell, especially people like us that work and do this stuff and sell this equipment for a living, there is no way in hell that I can't believe people would even fall for it. That's what I'm trying to say. And I like you, Jim. I just, I don't think it's right what you're doing. I don't do shtick. I don't do things for shtick. I don't try to get, I don't pull the wool over anybody's eyes. That's just not who I am or what I'm about. So you're trying to tell me that that's not a doctored audio? Well, I'm not trying to tell you. I am telling you. Jim, I've lost some respect for you today, and I'll tell you what, I don't even know if I'm going to listen to the rest of the show. Larry in Indiana. Yogi Roth is back. My man. Yogi, what's up? How are you? I'm doing great, man. I love coming on. How are you? Great to have you on. I'm doing great. Everything's perfect here. So let me start with this. Yesterday, I had the introduction of Chip Kelly as the new head coach at UCLA. Friday night, you have the Pac-12 title game with USC and Stanford. I have asked you before, but I'm going to ask you again right now. On a Tuesday morning in late November, how great is ball? (laughs) Oh, man, I love it. It doesn't get any better. I mean, in L.A., too, or in California, it's lit up. I mean, A, the waves are pumping, so that's great. (laughs) Chip Kelly is fired up uh we had a great time with him yesterday got to hang out with him after the press conference for a little bit and he he was awesome um you know that reminded me uh, you know of when pete carroll came to sc you know i remember talking to pete about and even when we were writing his book when forever he talked about the initial press conference and how he wanted to you know he treated it like a game like he was going to go win that and both of these guys coming off of two jobs in the nfl that didn't necessarily work out the way that they i'm sure 
you know, hoped they would. He came in and crushed it. I mean, his first line, I mean, there's over 200 people there, Jim. It was insane. Bigger than any national championship press conference that I've seen or Rose Bowl press conference or even coaches hiring across town at SC. This was gnarly. And he walks in and he goes, man, nothing really going on in L.A. today, huh? <laughs> right. And uh, he owned the room from the beginning. And for me, what was really cool was talking to him afterwards. He was so personable. You know, this is a guy who's known as being recluse, you know, being all about football. And he looked as effervescent, as exuberant, as open um, as any coach out there. And uh, I think he's going to crush it. Um, it's going to be really fun to watch football in L.A., man. Yogi Roth joining us. You know, it's so interesting what you just said because I think about Chip Kelly, and at least from a media standpoint, Yogi, I see it the same way. Like when he was with Oregon, we always had him on. He was always really engaging. I was like talking to him. But then when he went to the NFL, he, like you said, he was kind of reclusive. You couldn't really get to him. He was locked in. I'm curious, though, even before it was announced, you had been saying that your gut was telling you that he was going to pick UCLA. Why was that, and how do you like the fit for him and for the school? Well, I think a couple reasons. One, um, in Pac-12 football, I think, you know, a lot of coaches when you talk to them, they said the SEC is the most competitive college football conference, and they want to go there and see what that's all about. And I think that it is from a brand standpoint because there's nothing else going on. So every week feels like the NFL. And you lose, and you're buried. Uh, when you look at the Pac-12, clearly that's not the case because you got other stuff going on, right? You're building Snapchat up at Stanford while you're pre- prepping for the Pac-12 title game. I mean, it's just a different environment on, on the West Coast. But coaches-wise, I'd challenge anybody to find a deeper conference of gifted, not only head coaches, but coordinators who will be head coaches. So I think the, the mental challenge for Chip Kelly coming to UCLA, outside of the fishbowl of the SEC, For when he said yesterday, one of the biggest takeaways for me was in the NFL, you're at the cutting edge of athlete and the cutting edge of coaches. And you play a lot of talented teams like the Seahawks twice a year, and you got to flip your game plan around. So you have to be so sharp situationally, you know, in so many different minutes. He said every game in the NFL, there's almost like a two-minute drill to win the game. We see it every Sunday. So I think for him, the the challenge is greater football-wise to come back to this conference uh, at UCLA and win here from a schematic standpoint, because of the diversity of schemes that you have to defend, because of the, the amount of talent at the coaching, uh, you know, you look at Mike Leach getting offered jobs. You look at David Shaw, every NFL GM is going after him every year. You know, you look even Clay Helton has opportunities if he wants to go to other conferences. I mean, all the coaches in this conference, for the most part, that are here, or even the ones that have gotten let go, like Jim Moore or Todd Graham, they had other offers the last couple of years. So I think that it was a big draw for him there. And then I think L.A. Um, is just a unique draw for anybody. It is such a cool challenge. You clearly don't have to be from the West Coast to perform well here. John Wooden is the best, is the greatest example. And here's Chip Kelly. You know, like he said yesterday, I think he said Chip be on his way to Hollywood or to L.A. Uh, coming from New Hampshire. It's kind of a, u- a unique story, and I, and I think he's going to thrive in this environment, man. Yogi Roth joining us once again. All right, so Yogi, Friday night you're going to be part of the Pac-12 Network's pregame coverage for the title game. USC thumped Stanford 42-24 when they met back in September. What kind of thoughts do you have heading into the rematch? I'm pumped. I mean, first thoughts, how great is ball, right? I mean, you you look at this one, and for Stanford, um, of course, Bryce Love. I mean, what he's done um, is not given enough love. I know you give him the the respect that he deserves, but doing it on, you know, one leg um, with an offense that has been up and down at the quarterback position, and everybody knows he's going to get the rock. It's been incredibly impressive, you know, showcasing his, his strength, which is not just being a speedy scat back that I'm, 
I think a lot of people think that he is. You know, this guy's way stronger than people are giving him credit for when you see him run through the hole. But I went back and watched the games yesterday, and what Stanford's doing on offense, it's not just power and fade in the red zone. It's zone read. It's RPOs. I mean, it's all the stuff that you're seeing Sam Darnold do, KJ Costello's doing, and now he's really comfortable. You know, I called his first start against Arizona State when they won that ball game, and watching him against Notre Dame, he's as comfortable as he has ever been. This defense is flying around. Um, I can't wait to see how this one shakes out. I think for USC, obviously having a bye week is huge, getting healthy. Uh, do they get Porter Gustin back, an edge player that would be huge for them? Chenna Nuoso is probably the most non-talked-about defensive player. will be a first-round draft pick in the country. Their outside backer, edge player, is a freak. And the, the big matchup that I'm looking for that, that nobody's probably talking about is going to be the edges of Stanford's offense going up against USC secondary. I think for SC, they've been inconsistent there throughout the season, been banged up a little bit. I think the timing of the run-pass option game when you have to have eyes in the backfield in case they give it to Bryce Love and company – will allow K.J. Costell to be able to throw the ball. So I think this is going to be an explosive game. And then, of course, for SC, they've got straight gamers. Sam Darnold is a baller. I mean, he is like the Steph Curry of, of football. You know, I think he's that elite that he can carry a team. Ronald Jones, gifted at the back as a slasher back. He can fit it beautifully all game, one miss. It's a house call similar to Bryce Love. And Deontay Burnett is as consistent of a wide receiver as we've seen all season long, I think, around the country. So those three guys. They elevate any deficiencies that SC may have on their offensive front or injuries they've had at the tight end position. So I think it's best versus best, man. I think it's going to be an epic game and see if the South can finally get a get a win. They haven't won one Pac-12 title yet. That's it. Yogi Roth joining us. Let me ask you this. You're a Heisman voter for the first time this year. The Heisman Trust mission statement says, quote, the Heisman Memorial Trophy annually recognizes the outstanding college football player whose performance best exhibits the pursuit of excellence with integrity, end quote. So when you hear that phrase, pursuit of excellence with integrity, does it make it any more difficult for you to vote for Baker Mayfield? How are you going to approach that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, I was so honored when I got the call this summer to get a vote. You you dream up. I grew up in a town of 2,500 people with no stoplights. The only thing that existed was high school football, man. So I watched the Heisman um, as closely as anybody. Never thought I'd have a vote. Went to college, and I saw Larry Fitzgerald be second in the Heisman, um, the guy who is the definition of excellence with integrity. Went to SC, obviously saw Matt and Reggie you know, win their award. Covered Marcus when I think you know, he gave what, in my eyes, was the greatest Heisman speech I've ever heard because I think it changed the way that Pop Warner and high school kids approached the game. And then I was there when Christian lost. Um, so I've seen a variety of different dynamics around it. And when I look at this one, the first thing I do is look at the journey of the student athletes, where they came from. You know, Baker Mayfield was a walk on, you know, think about what he's done. It's insane where he's at, you know, as a front runner for the Heisman trophy. But I also look at his path and I look at his consistent behavioral patterns. Right. And there's just elements that are just factual. They have to talk about whether it was, you know, issues with the law in the offseason whether it's elements that he's had on the field. And that all stems from maybe the edge that I think you have to have as a walk-on. I was a walk-on who got a scholarly, and, and you have to be different than guys that get that offer coming out of high school. Then I look at Bryce, 4.5 GPA, biology major at Stanford, what this guy's done coming from North Carolina all the way to the Stanford community and excelling there and, oh, by the way, balling out. So and I look at those two things, and I look at the definition of the award, right? It's not the most outstanding player. We have that. It's not the most outstanding quarterback. We have that. We have the Doak Walker Award for running back. It's different. And I think the definition to me is a reason why 
it till today, and I haven't cast a vote, even though I got my ballot yesterday. I haven't cast a vote until after everybody's done playing. I lean towards Bryce because that's what the award is. And I think the Heisman Trophy should have the opportunity to give an award and take it back. You know, if you don't live with excellence with integrity and are impacting the next generation of athletes in a positive manner that that award should reflect, you shouldn't be able to talk as though you have that award. And, and I say that based on one experience, and, and, I'll, and I'll share this story with you. When Johnny Menzel was drafted, you know, I, I, you, know you, you get in my position, sometimes you talk to people in NFL um, you know, worlds, and I can remember talking to the front office of the Browns, and I got on the table for him, and my opinion didn't sway them one way or the other. But in my eyes, I knew Johnny a decent amount from the Elite 11 days. He was a counselor. I'd been around him. And I was like, you know, this is a guy who just made a couple mistakes. He's a great kid. He's going to be fine. You know, he, he just had to learn the hard way a couple times. And what happened? His behavioral patterns were what they were. And we saw, obviously, what happened with his career. So I look at Baker, and I'm not painting him in the same light as Johnny Manziel, but I'm saying you have to take into account behavioral patterns are what they are when you compare them to the behavioral patterns of Bryce Love. And at least then you look at how they're playing, and they're both playing at ridiculously high levels. It's not an easy decision, but if it's based on that definition of excellence with integrity, I lean towards Bryce right now. And that's the definition of the award. Is that how the 900-plus voters vote? I don't know. I'm a rookie in this, but I'll be damned if I'm not going to go by the letter of the law my first time and every time I vote because I've seen this break people's hearts. I've seen people win the award, lose the award, um, be crushed by the award. And that's why I'm looking at the simple sentence that you started off this question with as the litmus test of how I'm going to cast the ballot after the games are played. Last call of the old studio. Why not go to Wisco? Benny in Wisco. Benny, you're closing the show and the studio. What's up, Benny? Hey, not much, Jim. How are you? So good. I'm doing great. Good. C- congrats on the last day on the big closing. I just wanted to weigh in with uh, with my favorite, and I think most of the clones' favorite topics uh, over the past decade plus, uh, that being parodies and or uh, Jewel. So I just want to leave you with... Uh, Studios last for so long, even after you're gone. I know that you must flee, but soon I know you will see... It was meant to be, and Naj was meant to prove. That's not a good call. No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Not a Naj. very good call. Naj. A Naj reference. We're going to end the era and this studio with a Naj reference in a Jewel parody. Clones, that is it. From this studio, our home, for more than a decade, we are going to bring it to you from a new house tomorrow. But before we do that, we are going to drop episode 15 of the Jim Rome podcast with Houston Rockets GM Daryl Morey. Be sure to check that out. Thanks again. See you next time. I'm out.